Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Good morning. Good middle of the night. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. We're getting a lot of good feedback on uh, podcast 232. So we are. Yep. Tell me all about it. Well, I will, but not today. I'll tell you later. <laughs> uh, so I've got my I've got my Let's Go Brandon t-shirt on today. Uh-huh. I see. <laughs> you need your glasses. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, yeah, I'm very excited about it. One of my dads got it for me. So that was exciting. So I thought I'd wear it appropriately for the for our podcast today mm-hmm. um i just checked mm-hmm. by the way we're still clean <laughs> barely despite barely. Discuss, despite discussing let's go let's go brandon last week we, we we're still clean so you know thank you apple <laughs> for not banning us yet um what's new um i'm getting ready to move so i'm scheduling all all my trips going back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mean are you scheduling? Does that mean you're picking campgrounds or does that mean you're scheduling the ferry or what are you doing? Just figuring out where and, you know, how long it's going to take me to get from place to place and kind of getting an idea of where I'm driving each day. And, you know, like I was supposed to go to, um, to the state park, Olympic state park. Um, and I was going to go to a hot springs there and they close on the 31st of October. So I'm just going to miss it. So things like that, just making sure that I don't drive up somewhere and they're closed for the season or, you know, the roads are not good. for. Why does the hot springs close for the season? I guess not not enough people coming to visit, I guess. Does does God go on vacation? (laughs) It's kind of a she, she hot springs. Um, but yeah. So I'm going to be at a hotel for a couple of nights on Whidbey Island. That was a gift from one of my clients. Um, So that's really sweet. And I'm really looking forward to that. I'm hoping they have a big bathtub I can soak. And I'm in the middle, I'm in the middle of a pretty intense cleanse. So my brain is a little foggy today. So if you guys notice, I'm a little, uh, yeah, uh, how to. So let me get this, let me get this straight. Your client gets you a couple nights in a spa or a hotel, right? Yeah. And my client gets me a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, what can I say? <laughs> I've had a rough couple of years too. People people are just doting on me extra right now, I think. Yeah, you know, we shouldn't have to wait until we have a rough couple of years to be doted on. Don't it's- you think? yeah it's true it's true what about you you have somebody warming up yeah i mean hopefully by the time this airs next week she'll have delivered but she's been putzing along for a couple of days and i think that today's the day it's her second baby and uh it's breach and so we're just waiting and seeing what's going on this morning i've got to i've got to do a, i'm going to be on another podcast uh later day called the miraculous mamas and yesterday I did an Instagram live with Dula Chanel, which I, which I really enjoyed. She's got so much good energy. Oh yeah. Uh, so people can check that out. It's going to be, you go to, uh, well, just put in Dula Chanel on um, Instagram. 
Spell it. Like the like the uh, perfume, <laughs> right? Um, and then I, it's in my story, but I think your stories disappear after a while, don't they? Yeah, you can you can save them, but yeah, they do. Uh, Emily, if you're listening, tell me how to <laughs> how to save it. <laughs> You know, I also wanted to figure out if I can actually take the video off of Instagram and put it onto my Rumble page. But I spent about half an hour last night trying to figure that out. I don't think I can do that. I don't think you can do that. I don't think Instagram, there's a there's a way to download it to your computer other than just the link. I don't think you can get the actual video out of Instagram. Yeah. Right. They can take all the information off of out of you and, and sell it, but you can't get your own information off of them. Yeah, that's right. That's how it right. goes. So I um I have to confess. Yeah. I did not do my homework. <laughs> you gave me homework last week and oh to write the letter. To write yeah. the letter to the editor and I didn't do it. Um that's okay. You're 50. And I'm feeling ashamed. Oh that don't be ashamed. <laughs> don't be ashamed. Well, I, I didn't promise I was gonna do it. So but if I no. promised then I didn't do it, then I would feel bad. Well. I would. That's one of the that's one of the things I respect about you, Stu. And I think you and I are similar on that is, you know, when we give our word to something, it's it's it means something. And that's that's a that's a good yeah. quality in a human. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing when people tell me uh that I haven't seen in a while, they say, Oh God, we should get together. And I'll say, Okay, well, what about next week? And they'll they'll say, Well, call me next week. And I'll say, No, how about Tuesday at like eight o'clock? Mm-hmm. And they, they, they can't, they, the people, they don't know what to do. They can't handle the fact that you're actually trying to pin them down and make a <laughs> date. They, they sort of just want to wait, want to wait and want to wait. And then things don't happen. Yeah. Um, people get busy. So I always like to, I'd rather have it on the calendar and then have to cancel than have it just go into the memory hole and disappear. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that that's, Part of being a bit of OCD, a bit of what we call, I, I would call myself a high-functioning OCD. Uh, it makes me good at what I do. It's not paralyzing completely like some people who have real, real bad OCD. Yeah, yeah. But um, it just makes if I you meticulous. Somebody, what's, what's that? Say it again. It makes you meticulous, which is not not such a bad thing. Yeah. And yeah, organized. it drives it drives people who aren't meticulous crazy <laughs> because <laughs> you know you try to like say no no i mean let's just pick a date and let's just set it set it yeah. um you know i think a lot of people have this this behavior where they think if they just offer something they've done their duty and if it doesn't come to pass they can always say well we tried we tried we tried you know i, I love what yoda says you know there is no try only do that's right Right. You know, that reminds me, I'm going on a little grief tangent right now, but, um, you know, sometimes people need to know what are some good things to do and not do when a grieving person, you know, is you're encountering a grieving person in your life. The thing not to do is promise that you're going to help somebody who's grieving or show up to visit them and then not do that. So bliss wisdom for today. Yeah. Uh, follow follow through on what you say you're going to do, especially when it comes to someone who is dealing with profound grief. Especially then, but you're right. Yeah. It apply it applies to pretty much your entire life. Yeah. If you yeah. make a commitment to help somebody, don't forget it. Don't renege on it. Uh, yeah. Don't blow it off. Yeah. Um, so what else you got for us today? Well, I got a couple of things. Um, uh, more corruption. I think uh, just I uh, heard 
was it last night or this morning, I think last night, that the, um, I think the FDA has now approved the emergency youth authorization for Pfizer's vaccine down to ages from ages five to 11. So, you know, my initial Dr. Stu brain says, so what's the emergency in people from five to 11? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm-, how do, I'm get, really yeah, how do you get emergency youth authorization permission for people that aren't having a problem with it? So it is, they've corrupt, they corrupt everything they touch. Yeah. Every, everything, that the, everything that the FDA or the government or the NIH or the CDC touches, they corrupt because they, like they changed the definition of vaccine to fit the fact that this one, it wasn't a vaccine before. And they changed the language that, you know, it's, we call, called it word salad last week, but it's worse than that. And now, and now they're, you know, now that it's been EUA, I don't know that an EUA can, can dictate a mandate for schools, but it probably can. And so now you're going to see schools saying that kids can't go back to school without being vaccinated, but they'll still have to wear a mask. <laughs> right. It's craziness. I, I'm so glad I don't have kids school aged right now. I really feel, I really feel for the families that are fighting that battle. You know, it's an interesting thing. Sometimes these, you know, how I ended up doing home birthing was, was decisions made by other people that sort of forced me to make a decision. And it turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to me. And I'm, you know, I don't have kids. I don't have that responsibility. I, I, I don't have two working parents, blah, blah, blah. I, you know, my kids are all grown, thank goodness. But as you said, but if this was happening now and I had four kids in elementary school, I would, do, I would make a life decision and change my life. And I yeah. would change my job and sell my house or buy a smaller house or rent a smaller place or move out of the high, high cost areas. And I would raise my kids and I would homeschool them. And you know what? It yeah. would have been, it would have, it would, I, my life would have been so much richer if I had homeschooled my own kids. Yeah. I just do, I do believe that totally. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of, by the way, of um, more kids, did you hear about the lady that had nine babies? I did not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, a litter. So, yeah. So this is an interesting story because I, just find some of it a little bit unbelievable. Oh, wait, Stu, before you go much further, I want to let people know who are joining us that we are going to be talking about uh, resuscitation oh. of babies at home um, today when we have a guest, which we're going to announce in just a few minutes. But wanted to let you know that, that is our topic today. And and time permitting, we have we're going to have uh, an annual Halloween horror story. Uh, this one won't be related to obstetrics, but it's a horror story nonetheless. Um, so we got that at the end too, because we've had a almost annual tradition of doing Halloween horror stories. I don't remember if we did one last year. Do you? We did. Oh, we did. Yeah. Do you remember which one it was? No. <laughs> nope. I, I don't remember now. Yeah, me neither. That's why I couldn't, I couldn't remember which one it was and I didn't want to look back. We've done it every year. Yeah, right. we've done it every year. Oh, we dressed up last year. We did. Mm -hmm. We had costumes <laughs> on at the <laughs> yeah. We had, we were doing our our lives and we had costumes on at the beginning. Remember? You were no. You were, I, I don't actually. Th this is really getting bad. This is really getting bad. That's I funny. Have to, I'll have to do a screenshot and share it so that you can see. Totally. But okay. So you were saying? Um, yeah. Well, this is from. Um, this was. This took place in. Uh, these people are from Mali. 
but they gave birth in uh, Casablanca, Morocco. Uh-huh. And um, what's interesting is that the, uh, they had nine babies. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, infertility? That's what it says. It was spontaneously nine babies. Wow. Um, and she, um, yeah, which I find hard to believe, actually. That means she had to ovulate with nine eggs without stimulation to her ovaries. And I, I you know, I doesn't, I'm not challenging it. I just find it hard to believe. The odds yeah. of that happening are so, so small. Miracle. Right? Well, what I love about the whole thing is, one, it says they live in a modest three-bedroom house. <laughs> 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 Cracks me up. She, so she gave birth on May 5th in uh, Casablanca, Morocco. But because of her husband... Uh, is a sailor with the Mali Navy and had to stay behind at their three-bedroom home in Timbuktu <laughs> due, to, due to COVID restrictions and can only meet babies for the first time in Morocco on July 9th. So because of COVID restrictions, okay, he didn't get to see his babies for over two months. That's crazy. Isn't this crazy? Yeah. Right. That's like he couldn't put on a hazmat suit and walk into the NICU and see his babies? Uh, how old were they when they were born? Um, I, I don't remember the dates, but they weighed between 500 and 1,000 kilograms. I mean, grams, right? Kilograms, no. <laughs> so that's between a little over a pound to a little over two pounds. Which oh, is not bad. Yeah. Not bad. And so I, suspected that, I suspect at that point they were probably about 28, 27, 28 weeks. Yeah. And they all lived. Amazing. They're going to have their hands full. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it says they were conceived naturally. So that's just, I just think that it's a story worth talking about because it is, especially if it was spontaneous, you know what the odds are of that happening? It's like one in 80 to the ninth power. Um, and it, it must be the Guinness book of world records. Yeah. Because that, yeah, they overcame Octomom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was the goal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Octomom was the previous record holder. So now, now we're shooting for 10. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Okay, so before we bring in our guest today for uh, NRP, I just wanted to introduce it with this, with this letter. But before we do that, Bliss, you know yeah. what time it is. What time is it? It's booby time. <laughs> it's, oh, it's time for bamboobies. Yay! Okay, so let's, let's talk a little bit about bamboobies. And today I wanted to talk, they're one of our partners who we love. And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of their side products. You know, we talk a lot about their, their nipple shields and their, all the things that you like so much, but they also have um, some uh, mixes for you put in milk for lactation support or water and energy boost. They have a nipple balm, they have a belly balm and they have a stretch mark balm, which I am always skeptical about, but you know, why not? Why not yeah. try it? So what's your experience with them? With with bamboobies? Yeah, just you, you know, give us your your, your love. Give them some love really quick. <laughs> um, well, as you guys, those of you who have been listeners have have known that um I love environmentally conscious products. And so the fact that they use bamboo is a big thing and that they're reusable and that they use um all natural um herbs and, and salves is really a big deal in terms of how I make recommendations to my clients. So I'm a big supporter of their whole line. And when you get 40% off by going to bamboobies.com and putting in uh, code instincts, 
you can't go wrong in trying some of these products. And they and they and they're supporting our podcast, which allows us to bring this information to you. So please support uh, Bamboobies as one of our partners. Okay. Yay. Okay. So a while back, uh, Laura Laura writes on Instagram. She writes a while back. You asked about topics. Interested to hear you and Bliss tackle what happens when resuscitation is needed at home births, how it's handled at home versus in a hospital. Both my girls were born in a birth center with midwives attending. My second child needed deep suction and blow by and was transferred to the NICU. And it was very scary when you don't hear that cry right away. She's okay now, thanks to my wonderful midwife and the NICU team. But I'd love to hear the topic discussed on your podcast says Laura from Instagram. Great. So, so here we, go. we wanted to talk a little bit about that. And that was Laura's that inspired me to get this topic going. And so I've asked uh, a colleague of ours, Michelle Kazmier, to come on the podcast today with us. Michelle is Great. a midwife on a mission to support families and birth professionals to embrace the values of the midwifery model of care. Her over 25 years of experience in the home, hospital, and birth center setting lead to the creation of Baby's Breath, Holistic Neonatal Transition and Midwifery-Led NRP, which I just learned stands for Neonatal Resuscitation Program. Say that five times. Babies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> breath focuses on the unique needs of mothers and babies immediately following birth in the community setting. So I thought this was great because, you know, we know that, you know, in the, in the hospital, they have the NICU team, they come down, they do all this stuff. And that sort of thing. And you, so people don't really have to know anything. But in the home setting, it's different. We don't have a NICU team. So right. you can find, and you, we'll, we'll repeat this at the end, but you can find out more about Michelle and her work at lavendermoonmidwifery.com. So Michelle, welcome to the Birthing Instincts podcast. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Yeah, and we had we had the uh, privilege and pleasure of uh, being trained by Michelle um, for our last two times that we had to re-up because as home birth providers, every couple of years, um, we go through and do practice skills and, and learn, you know, how things have changed with, um, I guess, NRP's expectations is how I would like to say it. So um, we've worked with you personally, and it's good to see you. Very fun. It's good to see you too. And good yeah. to follow all your adventures too, Bliss. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and, and uh, Michelle's on a on a uh, journey as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yes, okay. we're both doing the same thing. So um, I don't I don't have mine um, up in 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 social media, but yes, we're doing the same thing. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I love that you guys are are doing that. Okay, so the letter was <laughs> this. So it says a while back, you asked about topics. Interested to hear uh, you and Bliss, and now Michelle. Tackle what happens when resuscitation is needed at home births. Okay. How it's handled at home versus in a hospital. Both of my girls were born in a birth center with midwives attending. My second child needed deep suction and blow by, was transferred to the NICU, and it was very scary when you don't hear that cry right away. She's okay now, but thanks to my wonderful midwife and the NICU team. But I'd love to hear the topic discussed on your podcast. So this is what inspired me to reach out to you. Um, wonderful. Wonderful. Um, so we, I mean, first and foremost, I think it's important to make sure everyone knows that we, we have the, the privilege and, and also the responsibility to take care of both clients. And then in the hospital setting, that's not really the case, right? So we, 
we um, we can really tailor our care to the midwifery model and um, include everyone that's present that the client wants to include, uh, both in when the baby is transitioning well and when it needs help. So it's really lovely that we can do that. So we can keep mom and baby together. Um, we can do all the things that we think are important and, and then include everything within the um, guidelines that are set by not just AAP, but ILCOR, which is the international organization. So that, I think that's great. So we can do an, an, a lot of different things. So I guess uh, my, I've always had a question about, you know, when we take the course, we have to go online and you have to do this portion of the course that's online, correct? Mm -hmm. With the animation, with the animations or the simulations or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they're using wall oxygen. They're using things that we don't have at home. Right. How come there isn't, how come there isn't a um, NRP directed just for people that are home birth? Or is that something that you're doing? So we, I think I'm not alone. There are other midwives that are teaching and nurses that are teaching this type of program that um, is special and unique for the community setting, the birth center and the home and the home setting. Mm -hmm. Because the American Academy of Pediatrics and, and like Stu said, it's, it's, it uses all the equipment from the hospital because the training is specific to the hospital. In fact, that's what they tell you every time you take it. It's a hospital-based training. So we do need a training that's specific just to the midwifery model and specific to the midwifery model in the community setting. Um, there are there are other, like I said, midwives and nurses that teach this type of training, but the um, the barrier I think for having a separate training that's completely separate from AAP happens at our professional level. So because the midwives are expected to take the AAP training for their license, and so we've those of us that teach this type of community. Um, neonatal transition resuscitation program have to incorporate AAPs into our program because they have that uh, requirement. So um, it's it, otherwise we could just step away from the American Academy of Pediatrics, create our own and not have those online modules, use the equipment in the hospital that we never see, that kind of stuff. Explain so me that's the Explain that's to me again better. why is it that midwives have to do the AAP stuff? Who decides because that? The, some state licensing um, programs require AAP's NRP training. And then um, for, I mean, you can speak to this um, bliss, but your specific license as well as mine requires it. So as yeah. far as I know, still requires it. So and it's, they don't- And it's ridiculous. It really is. It's, it's hey. and I was- I was looking today, at, I wanted to pull up the algorithm just in case we were talking about specific things. Um, and I noticed that uh, edition eight is up of yep. um, the algorithm that we follow. And, you know, it's just gotten more and more and more complex. Um, so it's difficult for me. And, you know, I hope that we can get deeper into this kind of more philosophical part of the conversation, but it's difficult for me to go, to take <laughs> midwifery and make it so medicalized, you know? Yeah. From my philosophy, you know, I'm I'm always interested to learn these things because especially, you know, if I'm if I'm somewhere else and I have the opportunity to be able to save a life with these, you know, measures, 
I, I'm always interested, just like learning some of the more obstetrical things from, from Stu over the years, but it's not how I practice midwifery. So to be tested and to be expected, you know, to carry these medications and equipment, just to me, it's just moving so far away from what midwifery is to me. So, and I mean, I think there's some, some, go ahead, Stu. No, no, you, you're the guest, you go. (laughs) I was just going to say that I think that part of that is also because we still don't have a cohesive transfer system. And so um, some of the skills I teach in my class that may be more medical skills than you may get in other community setting NRP courses, I teach because there's not that cohesiveness yet between our setting, especially if we're in a home setting far away from the hospital. Um, If the newborn needs higher level care, sometimes, you know, if we have these skills, because we are really it, that continuity for that um, client until that baby, until it gets to the hospital is really, really what's going to help the baby. And so um, we don't have to use those skills very often. So you're right, Liz, it's the, the more skills that we want to practice and learn and focus on our midwifery skills. And then if we have those other skills there and ready and we know how to use them and we practice them. So when we need them, then we can utilize them, but it's not something we do all the time. We, our main focus is the midwifery model. So we should be training it and it should be, it shouldn't, it's, it's a waste in a lot of ways, in my opinion, a waste of time for us to have to do the hospital-based training in conjunction with the community-based training because it we could be just spending all the time on our model and refining right. our skills within our model. So right. it's it's definite need. I mean, we we really need to work on it. And um, it, I, don't there has you, I don't know how you'd get the I don't know how you'd get the government to change things because because as we right. said earlier, they, they they never simplify things. They only make things more complicated. Right. I mean, exactly. I feel, if you looked at this, I'm just holding up for people on the, who are listening. I'm just holding up the, um, the, I think, I don't know if I got this from you. I can't remember, but. That's my, seven. Yep, that's yeah, this is, number, this is number seven. What are we on now? Eight? Eight. We're on yeah. eight. And happily, eight hasn't changed um, in terms of the algorithm that much. They've just changed their format to separate into two separate types of training. Of course, they always have to make a change yeah. to justify right. why they needed to be, have a job in the first place, because. If 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 you need an eight, that must mean there was something wrong with seven and six and five and four and three and two and one. And you know, are babies doing better because we have an eight instead of a seven? Right. It does, exactly. That's a good point. We, we're not. But you have know. to buy. You have to buy new books. You have, you to, have buy to buy, buy new, new books. books. You have all and 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 a and a large portion of their training now is a simulator type training for the hospital setting where. Um, teachers aren't even involved in training. It's all a computerized model that they're, that staff will go into a small room and train with this model and a computer and not train with one-on-one necessarily with other staff yeah. members. So, so let's take a, let's take it. We dove right into like, like the things that would be most interesting to us, but let's go back a few steps. Cause we do have, um, pregnant families that are, that listen to our podcast. So I just want to like take it from the basics first. So can you talk a little bit about exactly what it is that we would do at a um, home birth that might be a little bit different than what would happen in a hospital setting? Um, and and what is NRP? Like, why are we being trained in NRP? What is it exactly that, that we're learning from yeah, you? It's a good question. So the, in the time immediately following the baby's birth 
up until at least the first four hours are times that we look very closely at how the baby's transitioning from um, the uterine environment to you know taking its first breath and um, just transitioning through all of that. There's things that happen with the baby's heart that, that um, are incorporated into that. And so we've learned that in our model, and we've been doing it for a long time this way, um, and now the medical model is just now coming around to adopting it, that keeping the baby and the mom together and keeping the cord intact is the key. It's the most important thing. And so we hopefully in our practice are talking to our clients about that process and how we're gonna encourage that. We're gonna encourage them to be involved in the process, whoever they choose to be involved um, from their support team involved in the process. And, um, and our, our initial job is just observation to, to make sure that we have those keen observation skills, the baby and the mom stay together. We keep the environment calm and warm and loving and supportive and see how things unfold. As soon as the baby, or even as the baby's coming out, or even before the baby's coming out, we may have a sign that the baby is struggling and we, that the baby may need additional assistance. And so we're ready. So we have all of our equipment ready, but we're not gonna step in unless we absolutely have to. And we know- And how do we, that. yeah, and how do we know that before the baby yeah. is even born? So we are monitoring the baby's heart rate to see how the baby's doing. Um, we also know that perhaps certain um, procedures that we have to do. So for example, if there's a shoulder dystocia or something like that, the baby may be in more stress. And so those are some things that give us some, some heads up, even though we're always ready because sometimes we don't know if the baby was struggling until the baby's born, we're always ready. Right. But um, our initial steps are more observation. And so from my experience as a, as a NICU nurse, and, and even most recently, I took a, some experience in the hospital as a midwife, we're still taking the baby away from the mother as soon as we see some of these signs. And the signs would be the baby is, the tone of the baby is not very good. So when babies are first born, if they're term babies, you know, they should be well flexed. There should be some good tone. Um, and we should see that. Uh, then, you know, we should see decent color, but it's not as important. And we should also see the baby's heart rate is stable and in a stable range that we consider a stable range. So those are our first key signs that we're looking at. Uh, so if you're, so this is part of the APGAR score that right, it, um, right. in the hospital and home we're assessing. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're just observing, how are you getting the heart rate? Well, I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. You're not just observing for the heart rate. You're observing, you, well, you are sort of by looking at the tone because a baby that does have decreased tone likely may have a decreased heart rate. So it all correlates together. Um, mm -hmm. and so our, but our first sign would be, the baby has decreased tone when it's born. Um, if it has a term baby and it has decreased tone, um, because preterm babies are have a little less tone when they're born anyway, but if it's a term baby, that should be our first sign. We used to look a lot at color. We still are looking at color, but it's it, tone is our key sign. And then we will immediately check the heart rate. So we may be checking via the umbilical cord and maybe auscultation with the stethoscope to see how the baby really is. And that gives us feedback, but that can all be done with the mom and baby together and us not separating, not creating un unnecessary drama, just quietly going in and getting the information that we need and allowing things to unfold. Because even if the baby has um, what we would consider inadequate tone, the heart rate may be strong and it just may need some time. So we yeah. need those two, those two 
got um, two components to give us a full idea of how the baby's doing. Yeah. And it may be a little while before the baby takes a breath, especially if it's been a calm birth, especially if there's been a you know water birth. Um, the baby is um, not necessarily showing us that it has that it's struggling by not taking a breath right away, or crying, which right, was right. yeah, which was something I really loved about. Um, I think it was when they did seven, but maybe it was before that. But they talked about um, crying or breathing because in the hospital, and I think a lot of times, you know, because. Uh, women are so, you know, people in general, but women are the ones who are doing the birthing, right? But um, uh, they're so inundated with these images from media that babies cry right away. So if a baby's not crying, they assume that something's wrong, right? And in the hospital, they're very aggressive about rubbing the baby down, drying the baby off, getting the baby to cry. Um, And I, you know, I love educating families that that's not necessarily a normal thing to have the baby cry. They can just peacefully be breathing. Yeah. That's right. And then, and there's, there's some interesting studies that have recently been done on how that type of um, stepping in, not, but mostly the vigorous drying and stimulation really can actually harm the baby, not help the baby. So it's, 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 it's moving. I think they're moving away from that. Um, I hope in the medical model, and I hope that most midwifery practices are embracing it. I think they are. I mean, it's something that we've known for a long time. It's wisdom that we've known is that you don't have to do that. You said said something about, you know, initially watching them, um, for their tone, their color, their heart rate, not not essentially worried about right away whether they're taking their breathing, but how long would you go before you decided that maybe you need to give the baby some stimulation or maybe some what we affectionately call bliss kisses or or, or um, rescue breathing right. or whatever? How, right. how how give us a little bit of insight on that? For me, it's not a timeline. For me, it's whether the baby's heart rate is strong. So for me, if I'm if I can if I'm listening to the baby and the heart rate is getting stronger, and um, and the tone is improving and the color's improving, you know, it's a holistic approach because some, like I said, sometimes with a water birth, it may be outside of the recommended AAP window, which is one minute, because it's a calm atmosphere, and so my steps all will continue to go and um, not move into the actual resuscitation algorithm unless that heart rate is showing me that the baby is not compensating well for whatever's happening with it. So then we we would change things. And 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 the first thing we would do is change the position of the baby. You know, change the position of the baby. See if when you move the baby and you and you open the chest up and allow the arms to fall if the baby takes a breath then or if the baby's heart rate just comes up because sometimes the cord is in a funny position or it's being compressed and maybe that will help if the volume starts going up or maybe just the position of the baby needs to move so the baby can you know transition easier it may just be in an awkward position and sometimes that's all it takes so if the cord if the cord is pulsating then the baby's getting oxygen from its mother is that correct Right. Very important, especially since some of it's pushed out into the um, into the placenta. I had somebody send me a there's been a video circulating on, on Instagram about a doctor telling them that after one minute, the blood starts to flow backwards into the back into the mother. again so, And goes away. Goes away. It goes away. <laughs> just disappears. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. well, that's it's, I shouldn't even be laughing because when I first learned this years ago, we were all taught that. So I, it's, I don't even know why I'm laughing. It's just. Oh, you're <laughs> laughing because, because <laughs> if, if, if you've got to keep learning in our profession, then there are people that are still stuck in 20 years ago telling people that because of the term breach trial, that breach is dangerous. And so, you know, if you read something. Or meconium, let's meconium, that's another one. They're still practicing outside of the AAP algorithm in the fifth edition in the hospital settings in the United States, still suctioning from meconium. Yeah. And um, we know that's not that's not healthy for the baby. It's not the best thing to do. So yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot that's still not embraced um, that we are embracing in our model. And we know that it's really important to stay very vigilant with what's up to date and then also continue to practice and, and in our model we have to practice more because we rarely see these kind of sick you know resuscitative situations with babies um so you know that's the and and but we're also responsible for both clients so we just have to practice a lot more just in case it happens and why do you, <clears throat> I mean, there's the obvious ones, right? People who are not well or babies that are not well or come early that are in the hospital, right? Those, those let's say that's the exception to the rule. Right. Um, but why do you think that we're seeing um, more babies having issues in the hospital than what we see when we practice out of the hospital? Because you've had the benefit of doing both, yes? Yeah, we're, well, we're, we're able to... Um and we embrace keeping the mother and the baby together during the whole process. That is the key and the cord intact. And, um, and then we also have the privilege of having that continuity of care with our clients from prenatal time all the way through the entire neonatal transition. So in the hospital setting, we don't have that. So when I practiced it as a practice just recently in the hospital, as soon as the baby was born, the team, like Sue said, is in charge of the baby. And so my input on, on anything that happens from the time the baby's born on is no longer included for the most part. And, um, and so the things that we know help the baby um, are not the highest priority. And I think that affects how the babies do in the hospital setting versus the community setting. I mean, it's, it's proven research that if we cut the cord, the baby's affected. And now they even have information out there about how the baby's hormones and um, how it moves into more of the sympathetic nervous system and adrenaline and everything's released when it's, when it's removed from uh, mom and how that also affects its transition. And so, um, so does that answer the question pretty good? Dan's trying to yeah, help. Yeah, and what, and what I would say from my personal experience of being in both settings, I haven't, obviously I'm not a, a nurse or a NICU nurse, but being a doula and, and, and supporting families who transfer from home to hospital. What I see is the hospital rooms are very cold. God knows why. Babies don't yep. transition well when they're cold. So yep. one of the things that I always do is make sure and turn turn that heat up in the room um, and don't ask permission, just do it because babies need to be warm. Um, also advocating for, as you were mentioning, keeping doing delayed cord clamping. Um, and, you know, if you can, one of the things that uh, Hayes and I, when we do our childbirth education class, if you can, advocate for waiting until it stops pulsing because there's no reason to cut the cord sooner than that. Mm -hmm. And this, I don't need science to tell me this. This is common sense that, mm -hmm. that, you know, 
nature, God, whatever, however you want to think about it, would not create a woman or a mammal delivering their baby to need a doctor to step in and do something that would be unhealthy for the baby. So the more that we leave everything alone in this symbiotic process that's happening, the better baby does, right? Being kept with mom, regulating temperature, hearing the heartbeat that the baby's been so used to, um, all of the hormones flowing, but it also helps with bleeding, helps with breastfeeding. Yeah. 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 And when we are starting to see a baby that is in distress, how that is actually handled. And you did allude to it a little bit earlier that, you know, as soon as we see that in the hospital, or as soon as they see that in the hospital, mom and baby are separated. But what happens at home is mom and baby are kept together. And as much as possible, if we need to do a full resuscitation, we might have to change that a little bit, but there are some steps that we do, um, from the time that we see that we might need to step in, which could be stimulating the baby, change positions, as you mentioned, um, giving a few breaths um, before we need to do a full resuscitation. And maybe some some midwives have figured out how to, how to do it where the cord is still intact, but sometimes it's a little difficult if you have to put the baby on a flat surface, especially if they're in the tub and stuff like that to be able to do that. But it's done more consciously and it's done considering that the baby has come in with being a person. So talking to the baby about what we're doing, talking to the mom about what we're doing, trying to keep the whole room calm. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. And 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 all of those aspects all within our model of care, when we stick with them and we move through the process with that being the most the most important aspect of it, definitely contribute to how the baby transitions. And, um, and it makes it a lot harder for a baby to transition well in the hospital setting in those things, either by policy um, or by just virtue of the way the teams are separated, make it very difficult to do. Yeah. So, you know, if you're, if you're planning to deliver in the hospital, there are some of those things that you can advocate for, but it becomes difficult when you're in a situation where everybody is working and doing what they normally like. You get into a rhythm as a provider of yep. what you yep. know works. And so you you get into that groove and in the hospital when they're on, especially a peds team, it's going to be really difficult to try and advocate for anything at that point. So if these right. things yep. are important to you, being out of the hospital is probably a better choice. Yeah. And I mean, we could have a whole separate podcast on just how hard that is for those midwives in the hospital setting that do want to practice true midwifery model care yeah. um, and want to be able to serve um, the population of women that choose to have their babies in the hospital in that way. It's just extremely hard. It's very, very hard, especially if you have the experience um, and you, even if you have the experience, I I should say, and you know that these things work, it's very hard to actually make it happen in that, in that setting. Yeah. So, um, so all those things will contribute to how the baby transitions. Absolutely. I'm so excited to announce our partnership with Silverette Nursing Cups. The issue is for me as a medical doctor, uh, I have very little training in uh, breastfeeding and complications postpartum. What can you tell us? Well, I wanted them to reach out to Silverette because my clients have had such great results in using them, um, you know, toward nipple soreness and when we're learning how to breastfeed. 
So these are so amazing. They're handmade in Italy of 0.925 sterling silver. Silver is naturally antibacterial, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial. You just put them on your nipples after feedings and simply remove to breastfeed. You don't need any creams or oils. They're all natural. And the anatomical shape is makes them really comfortable. And they're available in two size, regular and extra large. So our listeners should go to www.silveretusa.com and use the code INSTINCTS for 15% off your purchase. That's www.silvertte.com and use code INSTINCTS for 15% off your purchase. Go check them out. So another question I would love for you to address is when we're talking about... um, there's two degrees of apnea, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So kind of distinguishing between the two, um, I think would be nice to hear from somebody who teaches this. Okay. So yeah, yeah there's primary and secondary apnea. And mm-hmm. so uh, we- And apnea means? Apnea means? Not breathing. Yeah, it's right. just Great. out breath, apnea okay. without. So, um, and, um, and again, you know, I think, even though my course is called baby's breath, the, the transition period is more than just if the baby's taking a breath. So we need to make sure that everyone understands because it has been so focused on that and not focused on um, how the baby's compensating in the first few minutes to that, um, either shallow breathing or um, not breathing at all, right? Um, but um, primary app, the difference between primary and secondary, I mean, without going into too much, you know, science behind it is just that if the baby will not come around, if it's in secondary apnea, it will not take a breath. It's just not, it's not going to. And so we understand in our, um, in our practice that if it comes to that place where it has been attempting to take a breath and the physiology um, and whatever the, the, the situation was made that physiology difficult for it, it is going to need a breath from us. And, um, so how does and, a provider distinguish between the two? That's, that's what I'd love for you to discuss. Uh, well, you, the, the main, the, really the, the definition of, of second, the reason, the way that you figure out it's in secondary apnea is if you start to stimulate and it's not responding, but in the heart rate's going down. Mm-hmm. And so the heart rate is not, is not responding positively to what's going on with the baby. And so that's what makes you move into the next steps of your um, algorithm or process. And yet, if you're changing position and you're stimulating baby and there's no response, then that's when we know that we need to step in and actually help that fluid move through the lungs. And sometimes a breath is enough to do that. And sometimes they actually need more than that, which is what we call a full resuscitation, which is like what you would think about for a CPR for an adult, where you actually do chest compressions, obviously it has to be altered because you have a brand new baby. Um, So that's part of the skills that we learn, but that's how we distinguish between needing to just maybe stimulate the baby and help the baby come into their body as a midwife would say, and, and actually step in and do some of these more hands-on. And we know, but we, but we can't really tell in that, in the setting, whether the baby's in primary or secondary, we're just, we can, we can, determine um, after we've assessed these things and the baby's not responding and the heart rate's not responding and you know we need to move to the next steps right. and and still in in newborn physiology the focus is always on the breath it's not you know the the it used this is where um, I think 
it's difficult for providers that provide a lot of adult care to understand that newborns are different. When they're um, when they are in need of resuscitation, it's in the respiratory system. So it's a respiratory arrest, a respiratory process first. The heart rate is responding to what's going on in that system. And so all of our focus is on the breath once we realize the baby's in secondary apnea and is going to need assistance. So everything is on the breath at that point and how we can adequately support the baby through that and get an adequate airway and, and we would know that it's adequate when the baby starts responding with a rising heart rate. So it's the second, the heart is the secondary system. It's really all what's happening in the lungs. And the heart rate is what tells us whether or not it's working. And so we use that heart rate feedback consistently through the process to see if the baby's responding. And so some of the things that change and some of the things that we are, we are really focused on in the community setting are the three things when Stu, Dr. Stu held up that card that I teach in my class. It's three bright colors. The, it's lar the, the large part of that algorithm. You know, hold it up again, Stu. It's, it's, it's all not, breath. Most people are going to be listening on a podcast. They're not going to see it, but that's okay. Okay, so it's all breath. Everything that we do is all focused on the breath. And that red line at the bottom is, is chest compression. So we, all, we don't get to chest compressions until we have exhausted every effort we possibly can to get that airway first. That's, that's our focus. And right. um, yeah, and so but like you said, and so that's why it's important to understand the difference between primary and secondary apnea. That's why it's important to understand as a midwife that once the baby is in that process, you know, no amount of talking to the baby, rubbing the baby, stimulating the baby is going to help the baby. We need to move into the next steps of the algorithm and not waste time if right. the heart rate is below levels that we know are dangerous for the baby and move into the next steps. And which is why we train that because right. we know if it gets to that point, we're it and we're going to do it. And so we move through the steps. Right. And um, it's been my experience in teaching this course that uh, the midwives in the community setting, because I have taught both. Um, know that they have this responsibility and they're serious about the responsibility. It's different than um, when you know that you can hand off the baby in the hospital setting and you're going to have a team of people there, just like Dr. Stu was saying earlier. And so they practice with intent and we learn it and we learn it well. Yeah. And then they continue yeah. to practice after the team too with their teams consistently. So you can move through your team communication, which is obviously key too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why Dr. Fishman... Stu and I like working with um, people that we know and we work with all the time so that when you get into a, a complication like that, there's a lot less needing to communicate. Like you just know, you know who's had, whose role is whose and it just becomes second nature. Um, and another so benefit of our setting too, not to interrupt you, um, Bliss, but that's another benefit of our setting that we have that. We, we, we have that unique um, aspect that isn't always the case in the hospital setting where ships are changing all the time. You're not going to know who's going to be there. The clients aren't going to know who's going to be there. We have that in our setting. So that's right. a, a, a really important aspect of what we do. Yeah. And like you said, oftentimes you don't even have to say anything. Things just happen between you because you've been working together so long. Yeah. Which is great. Um, mm -hmm. especially in a high stress situation. So I, um, when I, when I'm, 
educating my clients, what I normally say, and I want to hear from both of you if this seems similar to your practice, is, you know, maybe 10% of the time I have to do something. And that might just be like what you were saying, change positions, stimulate the baby, you know, those kinds of really simple things to, to encourage the baby to kind of come into its body. And then less than 1% of the time do we ever need to use real skills where we're doing a full resuscitation. Um, mm-hmm. And at that point, when we're, when we're engaging in that step, we're also calling 911 at the same time. And if, um, you know, if babies come around and it's doing great, we can always turn the um, paramedics away, but to have them on the way when a baby is in second apnea and we're, we're moving to those steps is really important. I would say those statistics are spot on. If you include all of the midwifery model um, techniques that we use, absolutely. So yeah. that that would be, and um, and that's in, and the, and that's looking at babies that um, that really require that kind of um, help. I'd say in a practice that otherwise would be leaving mom and baby to transition calmly uh, on their own. So it's it's a little bit trickier when they're not in really they don't really value that calmness that happens right after the birth with mom and baby together. Then it gets yeah. a little trickier, right? Yeah. So I, I would like to, practice, I would say that I would like to just spot com- on. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to commend both of you. Um, just listening to you as I'm thinking of questions in my head, either bliss was as is asking them or you are spontaneously bringing, bringing them up. So I don't really have a lot to add to what you said. Um, I would add because bliss and I had this one experience once, once before, is that if you do call 911, um, you got to remember that the paramedics probably don't know much uh, necessarily about how to deal with a, you know, six pound baby. And I, I don't have to get into the details of this, but Bliss asked the guy one time, are you comfortable dealing with this resuscitation? Initially, he said yes, but Bliss knew something in his eye and said, are you comfortable about doing? She repeated the question. He said no. So when the baby got in the ambulance, I went, you know, I went to the ambulance, I would suggest that whenever you're transporting a baby, that somebody who's qualified in NRP be in the ambulance going there because you you may not, they may not be doing what they're supposed to be doing. And at that point, there probably are, they may be doing chest compressions and breathing, and you need somebody that's going along with it because if you're going in the ambulance, um, sometimes it can be really significant and you want somebody that's qualified and skilled in neonatal resuscitation. These guys are great at dealing with, you know, trauma and adult problems and heart attacks and things like that. But how often do they see a baby? Yeah. Well, and, and also to add to that, uh, because I've been traveling and teaching this class and, and, and seeing the different regional changes that, that happen, um, they're, they're not trained in NRP. Uh, normally they're trained in PALS and it's a different um, set. And also, even if they are trained in NRP and the focus is NRP, they're not necessarily allowed to utilize all the equipment in their scope of practice, depending on who comes on the ambulance. Um, you know, a, a paramedic, you know, if you go through the lines of, you know, the different scopes of practice, there, there's different scopes of practice depending on who comes. And um, so for example, the LMA, which we are utilizing in our setting and um, seeing great success if the baby is having trouble breathing, uh, is not utilized on the rig by the team. And so if we don't go and we don't have that continuity, and we're not comfortable going and comfortable asking the questions that you and Bliss just talked about asking, that makes it difficult. And so we train that. We train the communication side too, because 
we're not always, uh, when they arrive at the community setting, we're not, they're not always, it's not always welcoming. And um, so you have to be assertive and you have to really understand that you need to be the continuity from the moment the baby's born all the way through. And we don't transition and move the baby to another provider unless they are higher skilled than we are. That's, that's an absolute. And so, yes, all of that stuff is absolutely what your clients should know to expect. And um, they can, and they will sometimes have to get involved to help get you on the rig, which I've seen happen before. And um, so it's really important to talk about that because if that, if we can go and we have the equipment and we know how to use it, it can change the entire outcome. And this is one of those, yeah, this is one of those times when, you know, the oral tradition of passing down wisdom from one midwife to another saves lives you know, and that's not in the algorithm and that's not in, you know, the hospital training. This is something that is specific to learning from another midwife that I learned from my preceptor because she lost a baby because she handed it over and was asking them to continue to breathe for the baby and they weren't. And so, you know, hearing that, hearing that story, I was able to pass that down to Stu, you know, in that moment, like, yeah, you need to go, you know, don't, don't hand it over. And, um, this is, this is something that is not always necessarily acknowledged in this modern training that we do now of how midwifery has been done since the beginning of time, which is, you know, we, we've had experience, we have wisdom. You don't need to study for a lot of that stuff. You need to learn from people who have walked the path before you. So yeah, yeah. I think, and then, I, and go ahead. I was just gonna say, and then and then being very strong in that model and understanding that uh, part of your role and responsibility is to be able to be that assertive to make those changes and 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 keep yourself with these clients all the way through if you can. It's yeah, and it's not easy. I don't even know where where I'm, that voice came from. It like came from from the ethers, you know, like came through me because. It, there, you know, there were all these big men with, very with their hard. uniforms That's on right. coming in being like, so, right. uh, I don't know, you know, dominating the space. And I just, it just, it took over wanting to make sure that this baby was okay. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and keeping it, and it is actually, I mean, it's in our scope that we should be handing off. We are, you know, cause some people will say, well, if you add these steps into your algorithm in the community setting, are you delaying transfer? And I would argue, no, we know that um, we can, we need to keep going with the algorithm until someone arrives that can transport, but then we're also can continue those skills because we are really not supposed to hand the baby off to anyone that does not have higher level skills than us, or at least the same level skills as us. And yeah. that's the whole point is that you're moving from a setting that is not um, a high level, you know, care setting to a setting that's high level care. So why would you give it to someone that doesn't have the basic skills you have in the home setting, right. but it's been happening a really long time, unfortunately, and it's definitely a, another whole podcast talking about right, <laughs> right, and yeah. the challenges. Um, yeah, this is this has been this has been really great. I mean, is there one other thing you'd like to add? Because I could just if I could just summarize, and then you can you could um, comment at the end, and then we'll and then. Uh, I did want to I did want to say one more question, if that's okay, Steele. Yeah, that no, no, I'm just looking at the time. Yeah, I know we need to wrap up. Um, but the other thing that came up with this um, 
this video that Stu was mentioning about the doctor, someone was talking about, well, if you need to cut the cord, which happens often in the hospital for various reasons, but um, you can always do um, cord milking. And I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about that. Well, you're, I spend a lot of time in my classes teaching people different positions that babies can be in on the mom so that you don't have to cut the cord. And um, if you did, the only reason that you would be milking the cord, just we should just say, first of all, um, is if you, have, if, if you do have to cut it prematurely. So uh, some people think that they should always be milking it and it's, it doesn't have to occur. But if, you're, uh, if for some reason you're unable to provide the steps you need to provide for the baby on mom, then you could. But it's not, there's, there's mixed information out there on it. And I think most of it, um, in my personal opinion, is moving around our uh, community because people are not embracing keeping the cord intact. So um, we could go into a whole discussion on whether it's effective and all this other stuff. But the bottom line is that the, the most effective way is to learn the steps on the mom and really embrace different positions on mom. So for example, we can put the baby up here on the shoulder and this hard part of the mother's um, chest as a hard surface. So mm -hmm. if you need a hard surface, there's a hard surface right there. So baby's face is facing away, the head and is in a nice sniffing position up on the shoulder. And so you don't necessarily have to cut the cord to put the baby on a hard um, surface to put, you know, do the things that we would do in the hospital setting um, on the warmer and things like that. You can do those on mom. So milking yeah. the cord though, most of the research just to go back to that is uh, with premature babies and um, and they even stopped doing some of it. I, I understand uh, some of the research even when they started to use those resuscitative parts with the preemie babies. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with the, they were in San Diego and Southern California, the studies that gone on with those those recessive parts that they put right next to mom and the cesareans and the OR. And, um, and then realizing that the information that they were learning was that they, you know, because they don't have to cut the cord anymore, um, a lot of the data that they were getting from milking the cord uh, wasn't really what they thought they were going to get. I guess I should just put it that way. Yeah. And I would say, I, I think that that was um, the only time that I would say that I would even consider milking a cord or cutting a cord is if we're doing a resuscitation, just, just as a normal practice, cut the cord and milk it is not something that should be done. It's only for a baby that's really, you know, severely depressed and needs that, you know, may, that might be something that you might want to try, but it's not something I would do in a regular practice. So I just kind of wanted to hear what you thought about that. Well, I think, but see, and I, well, I, I can give you the, um, the information just from, again, from when I first started practicing and I tell this story in my class, I don't know if you've already heard it, but we used to move babies always from mom um, into the nursery right after the baby's born. This was in the early 90s in, the, in a military hospital. And so my role would be to be at the birth and then take the baby to the nursery right after the baby's born, check the baby out, and then bring the baby back. So it was this whole thing. And so the cord was always cut right away. And um, we would bring the baby to the nursery. And the first thing that we would do if we saw the baby wasn't doing well was give back the volume that the baby was didn't have because the cord was cut and we didn't put two and two together. So we would start an IV on the baby and give the baby a little drink. Um, and um, 
and it, it was crazy how the baby responded to it. Um, the same amount of fluid pretty much the baby was going to get maybe a little bit less than it would get um, from the cord, the, at least the vital volume that the baby gets from the cord to transition. And so I would say, and I think um, even in your practice, because I know some of your babies are younger and or smaller in, in, in some of the practice, uh, I think that you do, Dr. Stu, I think you have twins and so on and so forth, right? Yep. That you, you still want to focus as much as you possibly can on keeping the cord intact yep. and doing everything you possibly can near mom or on mom. And, um, and so, yes, can you milk the cord if you have to separate them? Yes. But it's been a very, very long time, even uh, when I've had very sick babies, that I've done that, that I've cut the yeah. cord. Yeah, I've, heard, I've heard strange things where people have said, if you have monodi twins who are at term, and the first one comes out, you have to cut the cord immediately because the baby could bleed, uh, blood could go into the other baby or vice versa. And it's like, well, if it hasn't happened throughout the entire pregnancy, it's not going to happen once one baby's out. But, I, but yet, this is, these are the stories that I hear from what people are told by doctors, including maternal fetal medicine specialists who say that you need to cut the cord immediately on twin A after it comes out because it could suck all the baby out of twin B. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's a little bit of hyperbole there, but that's sort of what they're implying. That's crazy. Which is not the case. So yeah. as, Bliss said, as Bliss said, you don't need a scientific think, study to tell you what common sense and nature will do. Don't. I think it's brilliant. Just uh, Bliss has a way of saying things that is, is so mm -hmm. clear and simple that, that I think minds would explode in academia if, if she continued to, to, to do this. <laughs> they wouldn't know what to do with her. What? I don't know what to do with you. Okay, so we do. It was so lovely to spend some time with you and hear your expertise and see you outside in the the trees. Um, I know you want, had some things you wanted to say, Stu, to kind of wrap things up. Well, we'll do that after she hangs up. But but um, I just wanted to say, Michelle, you can we can find her at lavendermoonmidwifery.com. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about how they reach you and and how, if they want to sign up for a class or how does that work? Yeah, it's all it's all on the website under Baby's Breath. And we have some classes coming up in Southern California, in uh, Irvine and San Diego in December. So if they're interested in that, and we, we generally have classes every two or three months in the Southern California area. And then if I'm asked to go to other areas, or if they want to bring me to their area, there's that option as well. So it's all on the, all, all on my website under Baby's Breath. And what, what's your handle on Instagram? Um, it's Lavender Moon. At Lavender Moon? Lavender Moon Midwifery. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, so at Lavender. Okay, so we'll make sure that there's a link from our podcast to that and from our posts as Thank well. You. Thank you both for inviting me and having me today. It was really Yeah, fun. enjoy your journey. Enjoy Thank your journey. You. Looks like a beautiful day where you're at. Yeah, it is. It's very pretty. Charlottesville. Beautiful. Lovely. Oh, so you know what? Go ahead and hang up on us. And okay. then Bliss and I will finish up. All right. Take Bye. care. Bye. Good Bye, to Michelle. see you. Take care. So it's time for a, another uh, boost to one of our partners. Uh, this time it's Element. It's a healthy alternative to sugar electrolyte drinks. You know, it contains essential uh, electrolytes with no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, and no other junk, as they like to say, or as Bliss likes to say, no fuckery. We will always no BS. <laughs> no BS, that's correct. By the way, you know, it's really interesting with, with when I think about Element and I think about all the good salts that are in it, I think that Aren't our bodies like 97% water, something like that? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's only about 3% of stuff that, that are like the vital stuff, proteins and salts in our body. 
And it reminded me of a Star Trek episode where people were shot with like a ray gun and they turned into a little cube of, of, um, of salt. And that's all they were. They took all the water out of them, just cube, a little cube of salt. And then I think, well, you know, maybe if you just pour water on an element packet, it'll turn into a human being. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is where my mind, well, because it's got the vital salts in it, right? That's right. It's right. very good for you. And it comes in a lot of flavors, doesn't it? Yep. And your favorite, uh, your favorite flavor is uh, mango chili, I think. Mango chili. But it also mm-hmm. comes in watermelon salt, citrus salt, orange salt, raspberry salt, raw unflavored salt, lemon habanero, and chocolate salt. Um. So got great flavors. Um, you can go to their website at drink element, that's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, and you can get a free sample pack uh, with only the cost for shipping. Try them out. So, you know what? You're brilliant. Aww. I just, I just want to, I want to extend a compliment to you. I couldn't get a word in and nor did I need to get a word in. There was nothing for me to add to that whole conversation. You asked me to lead, so I did. Yeah. Well, but thank you. Did, you. you did. I, I get the compliment. Thank you. So what I got from that, and just if, you know, again, there's a lot more to it. And obviously I want everybody to listen. But so in summary, basically the baby comes out, you observe the baby, you keep the mom and baby together, you keep the cord intact. You remember that mom and baby are a unit. Uh, there's a unity between the two. So you would never take them apart, just like you would never do in nature. It's not the medical model where where I always say the baby in the bassinet is the uh, is the endpoint. No, no, it's not the case. You know, baby on mom, intact, uh, keeping the environment calm and definitely warm. So you Great. know, we heat the rooms up when we're in uh, at a home birth, but also we have heating pads. Sometimes we'll put that underneath a chuck. And if the baby has to be on, if the baby can't be skin to skin, obviously skin to skin is ideal. But if you have to do any sort of resuscitation or something where the baby's separated from its mother even by a little bit. You want to keep that baby warm, right? Right. Okay, we're looking at the tone and color and heart rate. Um, and also, I would say the condition of the cord, too. Uh, you know, if the cord completely goes flaccid and there's like nothing yeah. left in it, yeah. then I didn't get to ask Michelle, but it just seems like at that point, um, is there any benefit to not cutting the cord? There's no benefit once it stops, stops okay. pulsating. But, well, I'm going to correct that. There's no like medical benefit, but there's no reason to rush it. So why are we intervening with the process that's going on with mom and baby in terms of them bonding and the hormone fl- flowing and all of that that I was saying earlier helps with the placenta release, helps with bleeding, you know, so don't rush it. There's no downside to just cutting it a couple hours later when everything is calm and, you know, uh, they're asking so can we weigh the baby? I mean, that's a great time to, to, you know, cut the cord, but, but intervening in that process, handing a dad, a, a pair of scissors, like in that video asking, maybe we'll put a link to it, um, on this podcast, but, um, you know, asking the mom questions, uh, in that moment where she's, you know, within a minute, her baby has just come into the world and is screaming on her. That is not the time to, to need to cut the cord. It's definitely something that you can do later. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's it's sort of embarrassing for again for my profession to to have that and it you know and that's not the exception all right it's not necessarily no. the majority but it's certainly not a rarity right. right and then the last thing she said which I think is very important is no handoff to anyone with less skills 
Yes. That's, that's really important. Yes. I so if, if you don't feel comfortable, if the baby has to go and you don't feel comfortable, if you're from home and you don't feel comfortable, you, you insist on going in that ambulance, COVID or no COVID, you get in that ambulance and you go. Yeah. Right? You do not let that baby go to someone who's less competent than you are. Because you need to continue to do the resuscitation. So. Yeah. Well, Bliss, you know what? The annual Halloween uh, horror story is going to have to wait for another podcast because this was, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to detract from what this podcast was about because it turned out to be something that I, I got a lot of value out. She's a brilliant uh, instructor and we were lucky to have her as our uh, instructor. So <laughs> yes, we were a couple of times. Yeah. Well, one of the, I still remember one time hosting in your backyard, which was really nice. And I remember being at your um, fancy schmancy hotel. All right. We did it at the fancy schmancy hotel. Yeah. We went down to, I got you to go down to the pool with me that day. Yeah. I, I don't remember <laughs> that as much as I don't remember what we did last week either. So it's <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Well, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's really good to see you. So uh, have a safe and uh, healthy Halloween. Um, and uh, you're ready to go on your journey again. And, and I will have probably have a delivery to talk about next week, maybe more. Uh, I do. I'm getting inundated right now. I've got like five people do. So a uh, set of twins, two breaches, uh, be back after two. I'm missing somebody. <laughs> Maybe two sets of twins. I can't remember. Uh, it's fortunately I write them down, so that's what, that that makes it good. So I know where to go. I write the addresses down. I write the phone numbers down. I'm in good shape. <laughs> good. Well, happy birthing. Have a great time. I'm a little jealous that you'll be going to a birth today. And for all of you that uh, just spent the hour with us, uh, we love you guys. Yeah, love you. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 